Um, look, as you find your way back to seat, um, we're going to get started. We are jumping into a new series today. We've spent the last kind of few months with Daniel, and then we did some work in politics, and we're all still here. And as far as I know, we all still like each other for the most part. Well, we'll find, give, it, give it a few weeks to the election to settle down, and then we'll for sure like each other still. Um, Look, we're making it through. Today, we're going to start a new series, um, one that is very much focused on uh, very much our vision, asking questions of where are we going, who is God calling us to be, and what does the future look like for us? And that's, these are all the questions we're going to be asking over these next five weeks. We've got an AGM coming up on the 22nd of November, and it's really important that we have some really pivotal discussions, because in many ways, I believe we are at a very significant point in the life of our church as God leads us in a different direction. So as we begin, let me pray. Uh, Jesus, you have been faithful to us this year. You have been with us through all the ups and downs. You have been with us at the beginning when we thought this year was gonna be something very different from what it turned out to be. You were with us in lockdown as we were scattered across in our different homes, scared and nervous about what the future might hold. You're with us as we came back celebrating and enjoying being back together. You were with us as we went back and um, went into a shorter lockdown again. You were with us through a campaign and an election season. And now, Jesus, as we look ahead, I believe you are still with us. God, my prayer is that today your voice will speak to us, that you will lead and you will guide. Amen. Amen. Well, I... Last night was pretty crazy. Did anyone stay up late watching the election coverage? I, I was half doing sermon prep and half watching the election coverage. It's a dangerous when those two things mix, right? Um, but I mean, it's a pretty unprecedented thing for our country. I believe Labour will be in the first non-coalition government since MMP began. Is that, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We'll work on the humility for the Labour supporters. Um, it's pretty unprecedented, and one of the things struck me in, uh, as I was listening to the comment commentators talking about it is that they said, really, this is actually going to be, I mean, labor has some unprecedented opportunities, right? There's no handbrake of New Zealand first kind of slowing them down. There's no Greens pushing them one way. Like, they get to choose however they want to run the country, which on the one hand is a huge opportunity, but on the other hand, it's actually terrifying responsibility because they have no one to shift blame to if things don't work out. And Jacinda and Labour particularly have run on a very transformational message. You know, they're wanting to see New Zealand transformed. They want to see child poverty end. They've set climate change goals. They've laid out some really ambitious policy. And over the last three years, they've talked that way, but they could say, oh, well, Uncle Winnie was here. We couldn't do everything we wanted to do. COVID was here. But now, it's kind of open. And um, I kept on thinking of this phrase that Paul tells the Colossians in, in his letter to them. He says, whatever you do in word and in deed, do it for the glory of the Lord. And I was thinking about those two things, word and deed. And in many ways, labor's been able to talk a lot of words, right, of what they hope to accomplish. And now they have this moment where they actually have to prove it in deed, and there's no one else to hide behind. There's no one else to run to. They have, this, they have to bring those together. And I often think it's really hard for us to do that, isn't it? Sometimes our words and our deeds don't always, we struggle to get them to lining up sometimes, don't we? We have great ambitions, 
Someone asks us what our intentions are. We have lovely intentions, but trying to get your deeds to line up with your words can often be a struggle. And it makes me think about, um, there's this amazing story in the Bible where Israel had to face this very, very same question. This is in the Old Testament. The story comes in the book of Numbers, and it, it comes after, I mean, Israel's had this amazing journey, right? Like, they have some amazing vision of who God's called them to be, and in the book of Numbers, they've just been drawn out of the Exodus. We have the 10 plagues. You've got the splitting of the Red Sea. You have all those cool things you saw in the movies, and then they were going through the wilderness, and they went to Mount Sinai, and God came down in a visible cloud of glory that shook the foundations of the mountain. And the people were terrified of the glory of God. It was so real. And God gave them the Torah. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them these laws about what kind of people they were meant to be. See, because Israel had always had big dreams, big visions. I mean, they go back to when God first pulled out Abram from Ur. And he speaks to Abram and he says, and he gives him this dream that carries out throughout the story of Israel. He says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So it's the promise of a land. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you, all, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. It was this huge vision of what Israel was meant to be. This shining light of a, on a hill. The, the physical embodiment of what happens when God gathers a people to himself. And so they had this big vision and he drew them out of Egypt as slaves. And at Sinai, they got the word for that. They got their campaign policies. They got everything in check about what they were meant to do, all the, the things that they were supposed to be for. And to be honest, some of them were incredibly transformational. Like the, the words and vision that this nation had were phenomenal. We often miss it because no one likes to read Leviticus because it's granted a little bit boring when you get stuck into the yeast sections. I mean, like, they really cared about yeast. Um, but the whole point of it was God was trying to give them the commands about how to be a different kind of people. And these ceremonial laws were about how to keep themselves clean how to keep themselves holy, set apart, not being tainted or looking like every other nation around them. And they had some phenomenal things that they did. Like in their taxation laws, like they're supposed to be, like when you harvest, you have to leave the edges of your field loose so that people who were poor, immigrants, strangers, could always have enough. The idea was that in Israel, no one should ever lack anything. Even if they lose all their family, all their people, there's a net that will keep them safe. And land was a really big deal for them too. Like they all had their land carved out into their inheritance. This goes to Nephtali and this goes to Ephraim and they really cared about it. And uh, over time, there was a danger if you could sell your land or you could lose it or you could move it on. And one of the things that they cared about that you see in Leviticus is they wanted to make sure that the country stayed fair as well. And so every 50 years, there was called the Jubilee year where it didn't matter what happened to the land, it didn't matter who bought it, who sold it, who lost it in gambling debts, who lost it in a marriage, every 50 years, there would be this wiping of the slate clean. All the land would go back to who it was given to. Everything would be made even so that never would there be massive inequalities that everyone would always have enough. And then they had these cool ways about they do that. I mean, I could go on and on. The whole Torah is just, one day we'll do it as a church because it's an amazing collection of writings. 
It was this huge, phenomenal vision that would have been so different to the Babylonians, so different to the Canaanites, God's people dwelling on earth in a radically different way. And then in the book of Numbers, we have the moment where Israel has to put word and deed together. See, God rescued them from Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. He took them up to Sinai where he made a covenant with them in person, mind you, they're freaked out. And then finally, he leads them up to the edges of the promised land. He leads them right up to the edges of the land. And so Israel decides to say, look, all right, we'll send the 12 spies in. You know this story. The 12 spies have to go in for 40 days, they scope out the land and they figure out where it's gonna be and how they're gonna find their attack and how they're gonna move forward. God has brought them there, right? This is time, word, deed, come together, let's do it. And then the, sky, the spies come back and they give their reports. They say, oh, the land, it truly is amazing. It's everything God promised us. They brought back bushels of vines on shoulders, on posts. They said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you're a people that's been wandering around in the desert eating stale manna for like a year, it's sounding pretty good. They say it's gonna be great. But, then they also say, but the city's really fortified. The people who live in that place, they're like giants to us. We're like ants in their sight. We will never conquer this place. Because they realized for them to actually put word and deed together, it wasn't gonna be as easy as they thought. See, for them to actually put word and deed together and fulfill the vision that God called them to, it was gonna require terrifying risks. People were gonna die. People might lose their lives in this journey. It was gonna cost them almost everything that they had. A lifetime of struggle, of difficulty, trying to work in to take what God has called them to. And that cost was really high. And so they say, nah, I don't think we can do it. Now there's two spies, you know the story, Joshua and Caleb. They say, no, God has promised us this. It's time for us to put word and deed together. Let's go do what he's called us to. What did he bring us out of Egypt for except to this place? He will not abandon us even though we've made it this far. He will be faithful. But as they talked about it as a people, struggling to put word and deed together, Israel finished with this. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, if only we had died in Egypt, or at least in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it just be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and we should go back to Egypt a terrifying, crazy moment in Israel's story. When God had done so much, they had all the vision, they had all the rules, they had all the plans, they had everything there, but when it came time to put word and deed together, they realized how much it was gonna cost them, how much they might lose in the journey, of how little security there was and how little comfort there was in following this call. And so they said, Nah, I know this is our words, but their deeds reflected another thing. And you know a story, God says, fine, I'll lead you out. <laughs>
Moses cries and begs on their behalf, Lord, don't let us die out here in the wilderness. It's actually funny. I genuinely want to do the Old Testament books at some point because you have some of the best speeches with God and Moses. Moses is like this depressed, I love him. He's, he's amazing. He basically whines to God, Moses says, and says, look, I know, they're all terrible. I get it. But if you kill us, Egypt knows what you did, and if all of us die out here in the wilderness, it's your name that they're going to mock. And you can almost see God being like, <laughs> anyway, and then, then God says, fine, I will lead you through the wilderness, and I will bring my people here because I am faithful. But not one of the generation who's been here today will set foot into that land. And so they wandered and wandered until a new generation was ready to take up that call. And I've been thinking about that for us as a church. And I feel like in many ways that story, it grips us because I feel like we're kind of at that space as a church ourselves. Labor is kind of there as a government where they have to put word and deed together. And now for us as a church, we have that same challenge. See, one of the things is we're a relatively new church. We only started about two and a half years ago, May of 2018. And uh, in many ways, we still like to, I still like to think of us as a church plant, right? Like, oh, we're just a struggling little church plant doing our thing, trying to get by. Maybe we can get through if we squeeze it. Maybe God will look out for us. But in two and a half years, God has actually been incredibly faithful to us. He has given us a lot. He has gathered an incredibly strong group of people around us. And he has begun to place visions in our hearts of what God has called us to. And I really believe here at this church, we do have a really strong vision for what we believe God is calling us to. And it is around this vision of God is making all things new. If you've been at this church for any point in time, you know I quote Revelation all the flipping time. It's my favorite book, unashamedly, because it presents a vision of the gospel that I, I just think is utterly captivating. See, at, at this church, what, what I believe is I don't think the gospel is just a theoretical exercise. The gospel is not just a good system of morals that we can teach our kids of how to be nice to one another. It's not something just to help you through your week, like a little mental effort, like uh, placebo to help you make it through next day. No, no, we have a fundamental belief that God is doing something significant in our world. The way I often describe it is it's like this. I, I use this framework all the time because it, it helps me. The gospel is this. God is goodness, he is light, he is gracious, he is kind, everything that is God is good. Yet so much of our world is characterized by brokenness, depression, anxiety, racism, wealth inequality. We know that the goodness of God does not match up to the world that we live in. And it could be easy for us to give up and just be like, well look, what are you gonna do? Have the kicks that you can, have as much fun as you can before you smoke it and then that's it but we believe that God has not let the world stay this way. That in between these two spaces, heaven has met earth in and through the person of Jesus. When Jesus came down to earth, he embodied everything that is good and holy about God in a perfectly human way. And every way that Jesus interacted on this world, the people that he healed, the people he called out, the people he gathered around himself was a picture of what heaven on earth could look like. And we believe that through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, God is bringing heaven and earth together. That the goodness and glory of God, that love, peace, harmony, unity, all the things that our souls crave for, it is coming to pass in and through Jesus. 
and all the things that we fight against, sin, ugliness, injustice, racism, that God is ending those things in and through Jesus. And we believe the vision of the gospel is that one day all things will be made new through Jesus, that our world will be transformed and all that is good remains and all that is evil is gone through Jesus. Revelation describes this journey like this, what this new heavens, this new earth could look like when they're joined together. Look, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Everything that is good about God is now going to be with us. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What will that feel like? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. So it's a big vision. This isn't just a theoretical exercise. We get our kids in Sunday school, not just so that they can have some nice teaching about how to be nice to their friends on Sunday. We believe God is doing something huge in the world and we wanna be a part of it. And this fits into society. This is a picture. This gives us a picture of what society looks like. And we talked about this with our politics series, that as Christians, we do have a political vision for society. And it's a vision that Jesus himself described, where the poor are looked after, where the sick are healed, where the needy find community, where different kinds of people, different races and different ethnicities come together in unity, no longer split by these ridiculous things that we put between each other. But no one will be alone. This is a grand vision for what the world could look like. And as a church, I believe that we are gonna to work to see that happen here in Papamoa and in Tauranga and in New Zealand. Not because we're amazing or special, but because that's what God wants to do. And if God wants to do it, then it's worth us trying to do it as well. We partner with Jesus as he's at it. So we believe this is happening on a huge level. We also believe this happens on a very personal level. This journey of heaven coming to earth, everything of sin being moved out by Jesus, this doesn't just happen in the world, this happens in each and every one of our hearts. In fact, this is one of the key ways that God is restoring all things. Because we know we cannot legislate the kingdom of God into action. Doesn't matter how many Christians you elect into parliament and how many good godly rules we pass, you cannot legislate the kingdom of heaven. Transformation comes as each and every one of us meet with Jesus. And we feel that transformation happening in our hearts. And those of you who follow Jesus, you know that journey. I know that journey. I can't tell you how many times in the midst of my deepest, darkest brokenness, in the midst of my paralyzing anxieties where I'm terrified to pick up the phone or look at people or call people or try to get out, how Jesus has come and met me in that place. Not a theoretical construct, not just an idea to help me. I know Jesus has met me. He has transformed my life. I've seen Jesus work in my family. I've told you the story about how my dad was nearly paralyzed on the back, couldn't walk. God miraculously heals him. He's still walking around and moving to this day. This isn't a theoretical exercise. The transformation of the gospel happens in each and every one of our lives. And as a church, we are radically committed to seeing that for every single one of you. Not because we're trying to fit some agenda. 
We're not trying to shove the Bible down anyone's throats. We're not trying to make everyone like us. We just genuinely believe that Jesus is the best thing in the world. And if you meet him, your life will be transformed. Heaven and earth will come together. So as a church, we care about both these things, society and personal individuals, which means as a church, we need to care about the poor in our community. We need to care about the homeless. We need to care about the bullying in our schools. We need to care about those who are alone and anxious in the mental health in our area. And we need to give what we can and do what we can to see those needs met in our community. But we also care about, about each and every one of you individually, which means we care about evangelism. We care about baptism. We care about discipleship because we wanna see the kingdom of heaven come into your life and that you'd experience the life of the gospel. We have a very big vision for what God is calling us to. And we've been talking about this for about a year and a half now as we've done Revelation and we've discussed this together. We've had this vision. We've talked about God making all things new. The question is for us, a little bit like Israel, standing on the edge of the promised land, a little bit like labor now standing at the next term in their government, we stand here a couple years in and we're not a church plant anymore. We're not. If we look at the Papamoa Mount Strip, we're now within one of the top three biggest churches in our area. We actually probably have more funds and resourcing than a lot of other churches in the area. And that's not a brag, that doesn't mean we're better. It certainly doesn't mean we're more effective, but it does mean we have a responsibility. And we need to decide now, what kind of church are we gonna become? And aren't we gonna put word and deed together? That's the question before us. Let me give you a really practical way of how that works out. And I'm gonna give you an example through the one most of boring of things. <gasps> Budgets! Yes. Yes, Amanda. One person is excited. More of you are excited. The, the, the reason I, I, I talk to you about budgets is because budgets and finances reflect vision. Where you allocate your funds reflects what you think is most important. And I want to talk to us, because as a church, we've been on a really big journey. We've had a pretty significant uptake in giving since we began two and a half years ago. You know, even as far back as May of this year, on average, we were getting about, what is that, 13,256, $13,200, $13,000 a month in giving. And that was covering our needs. Now, since then, our giving has grown. And in September, we got 16000 which is an increase of $3,000 a month, which is amazing. It's huge, it's really, really exciting. And so what that's meant is as I'm looking towards this AGM, I've been thinking, okay, feels like for the first time in the life of Golden Sands Baptist, we have discretionary money. I don't know what to do with that. We've never had that before. And so I was running through our budgets, right? And I, doing the bare minimum, the, keeping the lights on, insurance, indemnity, power, heating, internet. Uh, the bare minimum that we need is about 160,000 uh, just to cover our costs and keep things ticking over, right? Now, with a slight increase in budget, if we assume that we're kind of on this track, I gave us like a 5% increase in giving this next year. Stay with me, I know I'm saying numbers, but it'll, it'll come together, right? With a little bit of an increase, our budget by the end of 2022 would be something around $210,000 which gives us around $50,000 to play with. Oh, $50,000? What do we do with $50,000? Carl needs a new car. Anyone else need a new car? All right, 
done, $50,000 gone. Um, and so I was looking at this and I've been thinking for this past month, what do we do with this? Like, this is a moment. We've talked a big talk. Where are we actually gonna allocate our funds? Who are we going to become? What kind of church are we going to be? And I've had a lot of discussions with you guys in the last month. I've talked about lots of different areas and we do a lot of things at the church. And um, to be honest, all of our areas probably need some help. In this last month, I've had at least these conversations. Um, those of you who know me know that while I may be a nice person, I'm not the most effective administrator the world has ever seen. <laughs> Sylvia knows. And as we've grown, we've had to do, uh, you know, grow, get better at our police checks and get better at onboarding new staff and get better at communication. And that's brought a whole load of new administrative tasks that he's helping me with, right? And so there's questions of like, should we bring on someone to help do the administrative load? Because that would actually be really helpful. So that's been one of the questions. We could get maybe a part-time staff. That would probably take about 20, 30K, and then we'd have a little bit extra for some other things to invest in some other areas. We could do that. could do that. Um, I've also had conversations. We run two different youth programs. We have an intermediates program and a youth program. Um, and both of them are run by amazing volunteers. They are incredible. They are passionate. They are serving our young people each and every week. And I am humbled by them, genuinely. They're incredible. But they are understaffed. There's not enough people for the numbers. I mean, our intermediates group is getting 20 plus kids, half of whom are not from the community. And often we might only have two or three people here on the night. That is not enough to be safe. And then our, in, our high school groups is growing. And we're thinking, well, look, we've got this, you know, if we add up all of our kids, we're getting close to 40 kids and intermediates and youth. We could hire a youth pastor. And if we were a standard Baptist church, that's usually your second number two hire. Get a youth pastor. Let's hire a full-time youth pastor that can look after our intermediates and look after our high schoolers. We can pay them. They will do a great job. They will look after them. They will bless them. That'll be great, right? Okay, so that'd be probably about $80,000. All right, I'll need to ask you guys for some more money. We could do that. Then, you know, we also have our kids program. They do a great job in there. Our volunteers are amazing in our kids programs. They love these kids. They come up with creative games. You often hear them on Sundays. Well, actually, one of my favorite things on Sundays is that we can hear when they're playing games. I know it's kind of disruptive, but it's also lovely when you hear them all shouting at once because you're like, way better to have kids than a graveyard, right? So they, they do a great job. But you know, we, we primarily have two, two kids volunteers with some intermediates helping them out. And one of them is Amy, who's now gone through surgery and she's recovering. You know, we got some people helping out, but that's primarily left Gemma looking after all of our kids week in, week out. So I've had conversations saying, we, we could hire a part-time kids worker. Yeah, we could hire a part-time kids worker, go back, look at that, look after them. All right, cool, so I, I started adding this all up. Stay with me, I, 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 it comes to a point. You know, say if we added like a youth pastor and a part-time worker for another area, we would probably need about $100,000 more to cover those two wages all up once you do all the boring stuff, which would mean our future budget would be about $310,000 for the next year. We could do that, right? $310,000, that would be a monthly cost of about 2,500, which would leave us with about a shortfall, about $9,000 a month from what we're currently giving from what we'd need to do to get there. And do you know what the craziest thing is? If we went down that route, which we could do, many other churches have done it, and God has blessed them and God has been faithful, but we would be spending about $300,000 in our annual budget. None of that would be going to missions. 
none of that would be going outside of our own programs. None of that would be investing in any local community initiatives. And I was looking at that and I had to ask the question, who is God calling us to be? You know? You get it? What kind of church are we going to be? We have big visions about God working in our community and transforming the area around us. We, want, we talk about generosity and giving, and now the question is, moving on to next year, we've gotta have a budget. On the 22nd of November, I've gotta put a budget to the members of this church, and you guys gotta ratify it. What kind of church are we gonna be? Do we ask for an additional $10,000 a month in giving so that we can pad out and pay people to do these things? We could do that. But I have a question and a pause in my spirit that I'd like us to reflect on, which is, what kind of community is God calling us to be? If God is calling us to make all things new, that's gonna cost us. And if we just pay and staff out all these areas, we could do it. But does that feel that different from how that problem is solved in any other area of the world? <laughs> I mean, essentially, my fear is that we'd be saying, yeah, we've got young people, we care about our young people, and we care about them so much, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna pay someone else to look after them. You know, on our Sundays, every time we have a dedication here at church, one of the questions that I'll ask you guys is I ask, will there always be a place for kids here amongst us? Will you model to them in word and deed of the gospel that they might grow up to love Jesus? I ask that question every time. And as we look at our kids' programs, we have to ask, uh, do, we just wanna, do we just wanna pay someone to do that? Is that the way we wanna solve that? And maybe our kids need more than just our money. Maybe our youth ministries need more than just our cash. Maybe they need us. The question I wanna ask as we look ahead to the future is how are we going to accomplish that vision of all things made new? How are we gonna serve and love the deep needs outside of our community? Because if we're talking about 50 to 100K investment, even 50K with our spare cash, we could do 50K, we could buy some new couches. They would be lovely and they'd be comfortable. If you've ever sat on that black couch at the back, it is wildly uncomfortable. Amanda, are you there now? She was there. Amanda's pregnant, she was sitting on that black couch. It's wildly uncomfortable. We could get some new couches and that would be really nice. We could get better facilities, that'd be, that'd be really helpful. Or we could buy a big deep freezer that we keep in the primary room. And then we build a team of people who go and do a cook-up at Topuki Baptist every term and we fill that freezer with food so that food can go out to the community whenever they need it. You know? Yeah. Like, how, what kind of church are we gonna become? And I think there's an option here that we actually can become what God has called us to. Like Israel standing on the precipice of that land, we could walk forward boldly and try different things. We could try to work differently. We could take on the element. We could start giving. What if we gave that entire 50K into community organizations and missions work overseas so that we don't see it ourselves? What if we make it a target of our budget to give 10, 15, 20% of our annual budget outside of ourselves externally as a target that we will never sacrifice on because who it's God, God has called us to it? We could be that. And I'd like to think that God might be calling us to that. But here's the kicker. If we want to be that, we still have to do the basics well. 
If we still want to give all of our money outside and actually give and invest in our schools, imagine what $50,000 could do into some of our local schools that are struggling to gain resources. Teachers who are strapped trying to make things end. What uh, $50,000 could look like as a youth worker at Papamoa College where some of our young people are facing huge difficulties. We could do that. But if we do that, and if we sacrificially give, that would require still all of us to run all the basic things here really well still. Which means we would still need at least five new volunteers for our youth ministries, at, at least. And people who are not there because they're ticking a box and saying, oh, I have to do this, but there because they recognize it is an absolute privilege to have one and a half hours, two hours with these kids every week. And it is a privilege to see God in their eyes and to see Jesus with them. We would still need to run a youth ministry, a kids ministry on Sundays, and for, to keep our numbers safe, we'd need to at least double the amount of people we got working there, if not more. And we'd be doing it without any, any payment <laughs> because all of our money's going somewhere else. Who is God calling us to be? I'm gonna finish now. A year ago, just about a year ago, we are finishing up the Revelation series. And uh, if you haven't been there for it, can I encourage you if, you, if you were joined us in this past year and you haven't listened to Revelation, go onto our website and listen to those because it's incredibly formational for who we are. And as we finish Revelation, nine months of a weird book where it's bloody and there were horrors and it was uncomfortable and we read scriptures that made us squirm in church and it wasn't nice. At the end of it, we came through with this big vision of what God could be, of God calling a church not to live in the comfort of Babylon, but to leave and forsake that and sacrifice generosity and humility, seek God in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we finished that series, I asked us a question. I said, what kind of church do we wanna be, church? And if you want to look for that different kind of community, if, you are, are, if your soul is longing for more than just Sunday Christianity, more than just a church that helps and makes you feel comfortable and happy and makes things easy for you, if you long for a church that is meeting the needs, getting into the difficult questions, and even if we don't have the answers, we unflinchingly stare and sit with the pain that our community faces. If you want to be a part of that church, would you stand with me? And I don't do that often. I don't often... No, 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 don't, just wait. I have people ready to stand. <laughs> I see you. I see that stand. I don't often do that, but I felt like that was a God moment. And everybody stood, and it was a cool moment. It was great. And I still think it's really significant. But nine months, 11 months later, that was like our Sinai moment. That was our mountaintop moment with God, where he gave us the vision, and he called us to be a different kind of people. Now, 11 months later, we stand at the edge of the promised land with giants ahead of us, with fortified cities that will cost us everything to take down. And the question is, are we going to put word and deed together? God will be faithful to us however we decide to leave, lead. And however we decide to go, Jesus will be faithful because that is who he is. But my fear is, I don't wanna to have to wait another generation like Israel did, to wonder what could have been had we taken the courage to give everything to this vision. Not the church, but the gospel. So we're gonna finish today. And I'm not gonna finish with a song, I'm not gonna finish with a big hurrah, because I want you to think about it. 
This is more than just a standing moment. This is a walking moment. Over the next four weeks, we're going to have different conversations in all these different areas. We're going to look at building a budget communally as we gather our, vet, our values and our vision together and as we look to see who God has called us to be. And my hope is at the end of these next four weeks, we will have an AGM celebrating a vision and a budget and a direction that is terrifying, risky, but faithful. But I can't do that alone. That has to be owned together. So we're going to finish here, and I want you to talk with each other this week and begin thinking and praying about who is God calling you to be and who is God calling this church to be. Let's pray. Let's pray.